Welcome to the second part of Becoming the Superman. The conversation picks up immediately from the previous episode. So, yeah, I really think Alan Watts is taking Krishnamurti and pressing him into a service that he wasn't that he wasn't advocating at all. He was he he was saying, "Don't say I'm God." Adida was saying, "No, say I am God." And I'm again. This goes back to the Pontius Pilate thing. And I'm gonna treat that ironically at arm's length until you're supposed to realize that you're God, and everything is God. You know, the thing is, is like none of none of that deals with the legitimate problem of development. That's all. That's all games associated with waking up. But where's the growing up? Right. I mean, it's true that, you know, you could exercise, someone could put someone in an arm bar with almost no effort after enough practice. He could do like, oh, it's like, oh, it's totally in flow. Right. Like I could play certain chord progressions in flow (laughs) because I've reached that level. I mean, that's so even the whole idea of not having a system is a problem. So even there, I think you could be you could be critical of Krishnamurti. Yeah. Right. Well, he turned out to be quite a fraud as well. A different type. Yeah. Different Maybe type. like the he's like almost like a meta, right? Like a meta Adida. <laughs> <laughs> Adida was like the god man of meta irony, cigarette smoking, pop music listening, other man's wives, <laughs> screwing, kind of flip side of the Pontius Pilate. <laughs> yeah. Because that's that is also him washing his hands of what he's doing to the people. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, hey, <laughs> if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Yeah, Ram Das said, take the teachings first, then maybe kill him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's de- there's definitely something to to that, and definitely if you meet him at a carnival on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I I do think that there's something to the kind of the whole planet becomes a school. Look, the truth is, if this whole planet does not become a school in some sense, then I really think it's the very good chance it's just going to be game over. Yeah. You know, but I, I can't help but think back to that young passage you read about the Protestant theologian and his dream and just how big it was. And Ken Wilbers talked about how you, in some sense, need to take our current situation totally seriously. But at the same time, there's a way that you can deal with that neurotically, which means that you kind of you ultimately don't believe in the immensity of what that Protestant theologian was talking about. Yeah. And that there's kind of a balancing act there, and but it all it also makes me think of the you know, I think it's one of Zizek's books or a, a phrase, uh-huh. one of his books, the bearer of the fragile absolute, right. But again, so much of the way that we try to change ourselves is so full of dissociative methods. Yeah. And that's where Adi Da was correct. That's where all these guys are correct. But the point is, we need a method to overcome that. And it isn't you're in in the other room and some guy is sleeping with your wife and he laughs at you. (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly not that. I don't think the school idea is that crazy as for a context for the overman. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very good.
And again, that's the idea that Uspensky is getting to of it's a reality now. Yeah. We're just dissociated from it. But again, it's not it's not this like easy sleazy thing. Right. It actually is a method. Like he has a very specific method because we're not conscious. Yeah. And a lot of people from different different you've got different bodies of research and it's all pointing to the fact that he was right about that. We are largely working on autopilot. We are largely functioning from our programming. Yeah. And we're kind of running these scripts. And that, to me, is part of that overworld where you set up the school is a context where you're helping to water those flowers. Right. You know, one description of the school could be, this is almost a sort of apophatic theology, but Nietzsche sets up the last man as the sort of opposite of the overman. And if you look at the way he describes the last man, and basically take the opposite of everything, you get a kind of good picture of what some, what maybe some of the tenets of the school would be, that sort of thing. I was looking at Zarathustra, and uh, Nietzsche describes, the last man is tired of life, takes no risks, and seeks only comfort and security. The lives of the last man are pacifist and comfortable. There is no longer a distinction between ruler and ruled, strong over weak, or supreme over the mediocre. Social conflict and challenges are minimized. Every individual lives equally and in superficial harmony. There are no original or flourishing social trends and ideas. Individuality and creativity are suppressed. I remember somewhere, I don't know if it's in that passage, but there's somewhere where it mentions that he blinks. Ah, yeah, yeah. And Heidegger made a big deal out yeah. of that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the next part. Or Oh, really? Can yes, you get to that? Different part. Yeah. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? So asketh the last man and blinketh. The earth hath then become small, and on it there hoppeth the last man who maketh everything small. His species is ineradicable like that of the ground flea. The last man liveth longest. We have discovered happiness, say the last man and blink thereby. Formerly, all the world was insane, say the subtlest of them, and blink thereby. I appreciate Heidegger making a big deal about the blinking. It's a kind of, uh, it's a, it's a kind of game everyone is playing together. Yeah. To basically, like, just kind of, like, cooperatively live in their little cubby holes. They just want the cubby holes to be comfortable. <laughs> right. Right. Instead of a kind of like a harmony of monads, it's like a harmony of cubby holes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I basically see that as a kind of way of blocking out data. Right. <laughs> like, right. Do you see, you see, you know what I mean? In other words, like blinking is closing your eyes. And what the closing, what the closing your eyes has to do with is not looking. Right. And and essentially having a reflex where you close your eyes automatically and in a sense you are able to remove what it is you don't want to see from your reality tunnel. <laughs> and what that has to do with is what it is that is not being seen is 
the higher truth that would rupture through that reality of that little kind of um, demiurge cubbyhole premised on the idea of man having reached his evolutionary apex. Right. And I made a remark about not letting someone like Jordan Peterson get a hold of that passage because he would put it in the service of someone like Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, and I'm not saying he's like Hitler, but there would be a similarity in terms of a reading of that where it would kind of be in the cause of social Darwinism, Mm -hmm. right? The idea of a higher being who emerges and necessarily gains more control because of his superior will or like superior attributes. Mm -hmm. But especially in the context of someone who's really defending the market system, which is what Jordan Peterson is doing, for example, it's really a conflation of dominance hierarchies and growth hierarchies. And that is the big problem. It's the big problem for those who engage in a kind of uh, confused form of postmodernism. And it's a problem for uh, apologists for the status quo. Yeah, there's there's a lot of confusing of the different hierarchies. Right. Absolutely. And what what really is important about that Nietzsche passage pertains to growth, right? not dominance. And the issue with respect to, you know, a market structure is the way that dominance really has to do with your position in that structure. It doesn't actually have to do with your growth. Right. And in fact, what it, what it is doing is impeding growth in general. And I would include it's I would include impeding the growth of people who are in positions of advantage within the market structure. Because a lot of studies show that there is a decrease in empathy as you move up the hierarchy of the market structure. Right. Which is a sense essentially a kind of like a deadening of nerves. You know, even in a Spinoza sense, it's like decreasing your capacity to truly affect and be affected. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's one of the reasons sometimes the uh, extremely wealthy can be involved in very kind of degenerate activities because of a deadening of nerve endings. I think a lot of decadence is associated with not being able to, in a sense nourish yourself with the impressions that this reality has to offer if you're a truly healthy human being, which, by the way, is very rare. Yeah, very well said. I'm not only talking about one class. Thank you. (laughs) First, a small point, um, Peterson and hierarchies. One thing that he does, and this is sort of unsaid, but he maps the he maps the socioeconomic hierarchy one-to-one to the competence hierarchy. And that is something that you can't do. Then that is somehow mixed in with the dominance hierarchy and with the evolutionary idea, like the, you know, the lobsters have the same hierarchy of dominance. And so 
I mean, there's there's a, a conflation of at least three different hierarchies when he's talking. I think there are more, but none are coming to mind at the moment. Yeah, yeah. You you make uh, that that's a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, clearly you can't really map position in the like when you're looking at the economic stratification. The idea of relating that to competence is just so obviously absurd because there's really really the the people who are at the top of that system whenever they fail they get bailed out <laughs> right and the way that the bailout system works that's supposed to help to it's supposed to help an economy in crisis they're the ones who benefit the most when they're the ones who have actually created the problem right so the idea of the, there being any connection there is, I think, you know, you've got to be willfully blind. Right. Yeah, definitely the way way you framed it. I mean, if you think about just the economic hierarchy as a whole, and then you look at who's at the very top, yeah, it, that, that mapping just does not work at all. When you look at it more, you know, provincially, like say, you know, in a company or whatever, and, you know, the, the very good programmer is making more than, you know, the subpar programmer or whatever. There's something to it. I mean, obviously, if you have competence, you can, you can rise up higher in a company than, you know, someone else. But taking it on a whole as, you know, just the entire economic structure of a company or even the, the globe, yeah, that mapping just is, as you said, absurd. I'd also like to look at this. I know this is anecdotal, but I think I, I'd like at least like your response to it. Uh, when I went back to do my do a second degree, you know, w one of the things that happens when you study philosophy is you find out if you don't start studying your math, there's a certain point where kind of don't know what you're talking about anymore. <laughs> right. uh, so you know, and I went back to study math. I was really surprised to see so many sexually inexperienced men in their early to mid 20s. Mm. And specifically kind of the the track that a lot of people were on was the probability statistics time series path which it's not strictly putting you on the path of working in the world of finance. Right. But in general, that's the path that those people are on. Right. And it reminded me of a scene from the Cobra Kai. Uh -huh. I think the second season of Cobra Kai. It was the first or second season. When this one character, it's like a nerdy, neurotic, skinny kid. Yeah. Talking to like one of the uh, karate, more physically adept people, uh, one of those characters. And he was saying he was like studying like crazy for his SAT. And, you know, the other guy's like, man, ah, that's not that big of a deal. And he says, well, you see, I need to do really well on this test and then get into a really good school and then be making such and such amount of money. And then maybe I'll have the courage to talk to a woman. See, I'm playing the long game. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And you remember that. I, I feel like 
over and over again, people said the nerds end up with the most beautiful women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people were extremely, and I don't mean it in, in, like in diminishing somebody, but their sexual experiences were limited. I think a lot of those guys were actually still virgins. Yeah. And what that, what that was doing was it was channeling their libidinal energy towards this intellectual endeavor that they predicted would give, give them a superior earning capacity. Uh-huh. But this, the sexual reward was like a carrot on a stick. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I'd say that the demographic was pretty similar when I was going for my computer science degree. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I started going for that degree like before the uh, before the internet boom. And so the demographic was mostly like that then. But then I finished it after the internet boom. And then it was like everybody basically, you know, wanted to get in on computing. So the demographic was much wider. Right. But they were basically just more interested in money than in the interesting and joyful experience of computing, programming, and so on. Right. Right. I mean, you know, like I so I have this beautiful book on uh, differential equations. And when you open it up and you look at the guys who actually made these breakthroughs, uh -huh. they were largely very religious people yeah. who basically believed in some sort of a cosmic order that they wanted to discover. Yeah. Whereas, and they built most of that. They basically uncovered maybe built isn't the best word, that structure exists because of the work of those people who are animated by a very different vision of reality. <laughs> very different. <laughs> <laughs> right? And now it's kind of like people looking for money or people looking for money as a way of, you know, finding sex. Yeah. And it's a very, you know, it would be one thing if it were, you know, like someone takes a vow of celibacy and they're searching for enlightenment, that that's one thing. But it's another thing if it's just like some, you know, twisted, <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of confused drive towards, oh, I'm finally going to get this. Because I think actually guys like that, I wouldn't be surprised if their wives cheat on them too. Right. And I mean, with the way that student loans are, it's, um, you know, you're going into indentured servitude to perhaps get laid. Yeah, right, right. So there are, th this is just another example of, I'm not sure how to even like map that to hierarchy. There is competence. There is a kind of technical competence. But it's a it's a function of a lot of strange things, <laughs> and it's not. I don't think it's healthy. I mean, the thing is, is that one like some people have remarked on this, and I think it's true that in America, at least among people who realize some of their physical desires, mm -hmm. there's an experience of a kind of um, realization of not being fulfilled. Yeah. 
So, you know, you could end up in a situation. It's one thing if you're in a situation and you're lying next to a, a beautiful woman and you're like, something is still wrong. I mean, what the hell's wrong with me? Why is this? There's something missing still. Yeah. And something else, if you, you're not even experiencing that and you're just like a demented incel. <laughs> You know, who's dreaming of the, you know, like when that person finally gets the chance to have an experience that's now been so distorted, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So it has the quality of being a holy grail. And then isn't it possible that you would end up with bitterness about all that you put into that? Yeah, absolutely. And then the guy's so stressed out with his job, he's probably like going to put on weight. His testosterone is going to go down. He's, he might not even have the energy to make love to his wife. She'll be having sex a lot more than he is. <laughs> I mean, this, I really do think that this is like when, when, when it's a carrot, when, when your mate is a carrot on the end of a stick mm-hmm. and you're relating to that person as someone via whom you, your relationship is established through labor generated into money yeah i mean it's completely demented it is to me it's just another it's just another form of commodification yeah so again there's competence there but in another context it's kind of like it's revenge of the nerds right and that's like it just in terms of personal development that's not like a very well that's actually really not a very well developed person it's something that um, Uspensky mentions when talking about the Superman. It's development of the intellect um, without a, a proper development of the emotions to go with it. Yeah. And this is why so much of the development of the intellect is a means of acquiring power. Acquiring power and using that power to get sex, money, whatever, status. Right. Which can just be another form of a bully. Right. I haven't actually watched it, but a friend told me about a a scene in the True Blood TV series. Yeah. Where a nerd is talking to this girl that he likes and she's like going for like a jock instead or whatever. And he's he's telling her that the guy's just a meathead that just wants sex or whatever. And, and she's like, yeah, but at least he's honest about it. You can kind of picture, I mean, like the way that the nerd would do it, it, or at least be thinking about it in his head is, you know, that she is like on the pedestal and he's just going to take care of her and never cheat on her. And, and, and instead of that, you know, she's just choosing this guy that only wants sex. But in, in the end, really, the nerd just only wants sex. And if he actually gets the girl, it's it's really not going to go the way that, you know, he's envisioning it. You see that actually pretty much daily in Japan, where if if there's like a, a nerd, but he's he's tall and thin and maybe has blonde hair or something like that. Right. He, he can become popular here. Okay. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen many people like that. They, they're often called charisma men is a kind of joking term, but, you know, I, I've seen, uh, nerd guys like, you know, juggling three Japanese girls. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it just turns into like a complete mess. 
domestic violence and cheating and so the guy's actually trying to play out like he's a stud riding around on a harley davidson or something <laughs> right right it's like the the nerd is just you know a jock without the muscles and popularity or, and so on but you know if you give him the popularity by putting him in rural japan or whatever he just you know the inner jock is awakened or whatever right to me it's like a really it's a real sign of just this just the low development of our societies for one thing thinking about something like the amount of sexual material that we are exposed to i mean i really get the sense that everyone is thinking about sex maybe a hundred or a thousand times more than they should be um yeah i think that i think that that's probably true and it's interesting how it plays out because in the porn industry you have people who I don't want to say none of them want to be there, but probably most of them don't want to be there and they are acting their way through it. And, you know, there's breaks and so forth to like keep the men, make the men erect again, or they're taking different, uh, you know, they're getting injections or whatever they're doing to keep their penises hard. And like women aren't, are only pretending to enjoy it. And, and um, so it's like a bunch of people um, having sex and acting that don't actually want to be having sex to in a, pre- create a product for other people who want to be having sex, but also are becoming more and more alienated from real sex and experiencing probably like a libidinal reroute mm-hmm. in some sense, because pornography gets stranger and stranger. Yeah. And I think part of that is because you're not actually having sex. So something has to be added to spice it up to make it more intense because there's really nothing happening. Right. And so then like the brain's getting rewired for something stranger that the person would not actually be inclined to do in the real world. Mm -hmm. And then they might not actually want to do that. And then, but then something that is just normal, that would otherwise be healthy, they're probably not aroused by that either. (laughs) So then they just become a weirdo. You know, like they've become, there's nowhere for that person to fit in. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things Uspensky talks about. And I've explained this to people and they get mad at me and they tell me I'm wrong or I'm weird. (laughs) And um, it's the idea of infrasexuality. Which is, and I, I actually do think this relates to the idea of the Superman, that, mm-hmm. that for a number of reasons that have to do with the matter of the development of a human being being an open, being an open project, uh-huh. the sexuality of human beings is basically unhealthy. Yeah. It just is unhealthy. Like, that's actually the norm. So, mm. if you're not if you're not unhealthy and you inter like you interact with other people you you'll you'll begin to wonder if there's something wrong with you right because it's just so strange like i remember when i was a kid i would get upset if i saw an animal get hurt and i i remember a lot of other kids laughing and torturing animals mm you know, and I didn't know how to process it. I was like, "Wait, you know, like I don't. Uh, w- what's going on here?" 
you know, <laughs> like it's remember like, you know, kids taking frogs and, and putting them like splatting them against walls with slingshots and guys with their, you know, their pellet gun shooting birds. Yeah. You don't have that much of a basis to even know up from down. And you're like, am I just overly sensitive? And I think human sexuality functions like that. And um, I think it's just part of the general process of, of human beings. Strangely enough, that the default state for a human being is to not really be properly developed. Yeah. And especially in a market system like ours, it tends to maximize kind of exploiting people through their weaknesses. Right. And there's all, there's so much alienation between people. Then with the sexuality, there's like a very, there's, there's, there's very poor communication. Yeah. So if people can't communicate, it's very strange for them to then kind of like take off their clothes and somehow something magical happens. <laughs> More often, what actually happens is people fantasize about something magical happening while they masturbate, while other people um, are traveling down paths of just like demented real-time sex, which probably has a quality of indifference. Yeah, that's um, that's a whole lot to respond to. Yeah, I'm sorry I went, <laughs> but yeah. Well, for for one. I remember I read an interview with Tyler Knight, who is a, a male porn stunt dick or whatever you want to call him. What did you call him? A, a, a stunt dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he, he basically just said what you said, you know, that he doesn't want to be there. And, you know, most of the people that he's around don't want to be there. And he described once the lights are set and he's got a heart on and, you know, it's like time to, to film or whatever. He, he, I think he said that he goes to a, a happy place, like inside his mind, you know, it, like uh, escaping from <laughs> the actual sex act into something that's more bearable. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, your, your point is great that, I mean, it's, it's like an ad, you know, an advertisement for people to do something, you know, that is enjoyable and perhaps even in some way a type of spiritual communion. But it's just all special effects and drugs injected into dicks to keep them hard. And the whole thing is just a sham and a fake. It reminds me of how someone once uh, characterized a football game uh -huh. where it's something like a small group of people desperately in need of rest being watched by a very large group of people desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> yeah, that's a great analogy. You, you talked about, well, we talked about your idea that this sort of default mode for people is one of a kind of dysfunction. And one way to look at it is that as humans, we have to be cultured from the start. Like, you know, if we were left on our own, we wouldn't even learn to talk, let alone to do higher math. So there's a growth process to become human. But then we also have to think about, you know, the, the, the sorts of limits of what it is to be human and so on. And it really seems that our, our cultures worldwide 
are at such a low level of development that people aren't really brought up much further than like maybe to be technically competent in some job related field on the one hand and just a pile of slop along many other dimensions. <laughs> well, you're reminding me of something it says in Thus Spoke Zarathustra where he says something like man is still only a hybrid of plant and phantom. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the Superman, I've heard it described in many different ways, and but one kind of typical way in which the Superman is described is a person who has gone beyond their culture, who has waken up and grown up to degrees that best the overall cultural level of the world. And they try either to help us to get there or to simply show that there's a better way. Or they work in some way to improve the world, like the image of the bodhisattva and that kind of thing. So we basically have this idea that there's a growth process to be, become human, and then the culture gets us to a certain level. But there are levels above that, and the Superman is a person who has achieved that. Well, actually, take, take what you just said. Here are two lines from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I love him who justifies future and redeems past generations, for he wants to perish of the present. I love him who chastens his God, because he loves his God, for he must perish of the wrath of his God. I love him whose soul is deep, even in being wounded, and who can perish of a small experience, thus he goes gladly over the bridge. Yeah, interesting. That was more than two, but I saw the next one. I thought I'd read it too. Yeah, I've always liked Nietzsche's idea that we should have nostalgia for the future. Yeah, it's interesting. In Ivan Karamazov, he says he talks about what a horrible world this is and all the suffering. Yeah. I think he tells some story about like a general who had a child ripped apart by by dogs for his amusement. Uh-huh. And he would and and he ha he said basically he complained about the idea of manuring a future harmony yeah that somehow it's justified by the future that there's some idea of like well it's all you know like kids need to be ripped apart by dogs and you know mm. all this like all this horror needs to happen <laughs> so that there could be oh he said something like manure a future harmony for someone else i think that was the line right yeah it's a strange place we're in i mean i often picture where we are as this kind of road that is almost infinite in length you know it's basically like it's as if the duration of the universe since the big bang is translated into a physical length and that becomes the road and then the road is just made out of the millions and billions and trillions of creatures that suffered, suffered cruelties and just died for us to be here. Yeah, there's a moment in that uh, series Rome where these guys are stranded on an island after a shipwreck and, and the guy's sitting there looking and he sees a couple floating bodies. And then later you see they built a raft using the dead bodies floating. 
it's kind of a similar image. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, it's kind of like there's always a sense of a of conflicts between generations. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, a lot of it is often people like saying, what the hell have you done to the world? <laughs> right. Yeah, it was just yesterday I was reading Thomas Nagel or Nagel. I don't I'm not sure his his latest book. It's a quite interesting book. It tries to sort of dismantle the the materialist viewpoint through philosophy. But the only reason I bring it up is in the footnotes, he talked about kind of feeling like the world is like being torn away from him by the the new ways that the younger generation uses words. When was he writing? I think this just came out this year. Oh, yeah, it's strange. It's also it's also strange, though, when things happen the other way around, like suddenly people realize something that they missed. Yeah, yeah. And then something, you know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, this guy's paintings are great. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yeah. I feel like I listened to an analysis of the song Seesaw, um, one of the earliest Pink Floyd songs. Yeah. That was, and it was written by Rick Wright. Uh-huh. And as the guy was analyzing it, it really got me thinking. And the level of complexity um, of that song, it's, it's way beyond what the other guys in Pink Floyd were writing in terms of just like, you know, chord progression. Mm. And then I found it was kind of obscure. I'll see if I can find the link, but it was this cover band playing this cover, this interesting cover version of it. Uh And I was like, man, this is a great song. Mm. And, you know, there were people on the thread like, what is this? You know, and everyone's like, oh, this is the, like the most underrated Pink Floyd song ever. Right. It makes you wonder. So, yeah, it's both ways. I think it's like hard for people not to like everyone feels that, that they missed out on something, you know? Yeah. So they they probably also see people of the of the next generation squandering their opportunities or whatever. Right. Personally, what I see is a very desperate situation where we need to definitely change our trajectory because it's it's not it's not impossible to imagine that even like 50 years from now there there won't be anybody left on this planet. Right. Yeah, well my fear my fear is basically that while the next generation is always different, it isn't actually that much better, if any at all, in, in terms of the trajectory. Right. Better or better off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like there's this constant thing that they say, like, oh, you know, you guys, millennials are lazy or what have you. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the United States. It's like it's a completely outsourced economy. <laughs> right. And, you know, people talk about, like, student debt. You know, some people say, well, you, you shouldn't have borrowed the money or what have you. But we were we were repeatedly told, oh, well, you need to go to college, you need to do this, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's even still the story, you know? I mean, a lot of people are talking about, you know, that we're going to enter or we are entering a sort of post-university era. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, it's... It's still 
if you look at the statistics for, you know, for income and even for like happiness and that sort of thing, it's still it's still a story that you need that degree. And mm -hmm. for how many people that can't afford to just pay the exorbitant amounts, you know, there's no other way to do it except for loans. Right. Well, look at like, look, for example, at, you know, you like you're in Japan. Yeah. People can't get those any of those jobs with a sponsored visa. You can't do that without a bachelor's degree. Right. Right. You can't even get over there. Right. So, yeah, it is true. So, yeah, that's that's that, that's definitely an issue. And then there's also, you know, what did you get your degree in? That that of course is a big issue. Right. It's um they, you know, it, it's also like they really and it's just this is a sickness all over the world, but it's especially in the United States. It's really I think maybe more of a western sickness. Mhm. Mm but we're told from when we're young either you're an English person or you're a math person. You're like a math science person or an English literature, poetry, right. blah, 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 blah person. Right. And it almost inherently makes you a lopsided person. Because whatever you get convinced, whatever you end up believing, then you just, you're like, oh, you know, yeah. I guess I'll go in this direction and let the other like part of my mind just rot <laughs> until like... It never dawns on me that I'm just rotting. Yeah, well, it's something that I could say, like, basically, the pressure of economics has basically pushed from the West into the East as well. There was recently one of the one of the higher ups, it might have even been the prime minister, I forget, but was basically putting pressure on universities to do away with humanities courses that they're not going to get the country ahead. I mean, what madness. Well, you know what? It's the thing is, humanities are so politicized here. Yeah, yeah. That when other in other cultures they look at humanities, they're like, ah, let's let's skip that one <laughs> because it's it's not it's not actually an attempt to really deal with humanity. It's too much of it is just harebrained political rhetoric. Oh yeah, yeah. You and I both, we've gone to university to study both sides of that. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you know, as well as I do, that there's just on the humanity side, there's just a lot of like winging it and complete lack of rigor. And some of my classes on that side of the fence were not that different from a kindergarten show and tell. <laughs> you're gonna top off at a low level if you only develop half your being if you believe that garbage that they tell you that either you can prove the pythagorean theorem or you can write a poem <laughs> <laughs> what yeah you know yeah it's crazy and the, the the university system is i mean it's getting even more crazy you know, for decades now, it's just moving more and more away from education and more and more towards this get scouted by some depraved profit seeking corporation, you know, kind of factory system. Yeah, it's weird, too, that it's a combination of this, uh, this kind of like corporate structure 
Yeah. And really pseudo-revolutionary rhetoric <laughs> yeah. Yeah. about changing the system in ways that will actually only perpetuate the system. Right, absolutely. So I, I think it's one of the reasons that they've really overemphasized certain social aspects of change. Right. And have seriously neglected in-depth economic critiques. I'm not saying that you don't have a lot of, you know, adjuncts with attitudes right. teaching humanities courses and putting their spin on it, but not not a like a, an in-depth, like well thought out critique of the market system and also a willingness to show what the perspectives are you know like what the contending theories are how they fare on you know when considering different perspectives right and or like when you're dealing with different issues and keeping it as an open question but really being serious about the critique i mean just in terms of you know, people going bankrupt over medical emergencies. The, the, this, it's like a, it's a really desperate situation here. Like people are afraid of of getting bitten by a tick or something. Like they they could go bankrupt. Yeah, I I think part of this overall low development of humanity is humanity is is it's in the structure. I think you know, like it's a, but it almost seems like a cosmic rule that. People will top off at a low level and they'll seal it over with an image of an enemy and the enemy will be some kind of a caricature of a real person and that everyone will be fighting with phantoms instead of addressing issues that are actually of paramount concern to pretty much everybody. Right. Well, it seems, I mean, even if you take like say philosophy one of the humanities it has it has come more and more to be a kind of reflexive study of you know the developments of physics and the sorts of theories that come out of like the economic world and so on and philosophy in a way doesn't offer so much answers as to you know sort of problematize these things and then you end up with this sort of lowbrow humanities, lowbrow version of humanities, where it's like, okay, well, we, we have to come to some answers about this. And then it just veers off into these like strange fantasies about like actual enemies that don't really exist and so on. The, the, the kinds of fantasies that you were just describing. I feel like there's going to be particularly because of the sort of bizarro left and bizarro humanities that has kind of emerged in this era, there's going to have to be a fight to preserve that that side of the, the brain or that side of the, like, you know, ways of thinking and experiencing and so on, because it really has just become a complete, absolute caricature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it has. And I think that whatever, if you, I mean, if you look at it on kind of on like on a really fundamental level, what is it, th this idea that human beings need to think in different categories to really to, to be oriented towards the future or whatever 
the you know what what the potential of Superman is within us and frame it in terms of Uspensky that that's within us. Yeah. Because our mode of perception as beings, our spatio-temporal kind of schematization is a property of us, but within the larger framework, all that potential, all that reality already exists. Right. That it's already there. And that the act of seeking is a dissociation from the realization. I mean, you know, I I think I've seen that in Tibetan Buddhism, yeah, like yeah. this idea of Vajra pride. It's like you, it is you. It, you know, Buddhism, they'll say something like, you already are the Buddha. Yeah. You need to be oriented towards futurity, thinking in terms of futurity, but also it has to be embodied now yeah. in your in your reality, overman or superman, it's it's inherently problematic to use that kind of terminology because what it suggests is like some sort of massive ego amplification. Right. Instead of reaching a new level. Now when we think of ego amplification, you know, we we we, we think of like supercharging ourselves. It's like everything is on steroids now. Instead of yeah actually moving towards new categories and the thing is is that so we're used to and this is part of maybe like more the slave side of morality where nietzsche talks about master morality and slave morality the slave the slave is actually in a position of not really having power and then the the morality is structured around making virtuous like interpreting a kind of helplessness as virtuousness. Right. And then the, so the other side of that, of course, is revenge. Yeah. You know, Nietzsche talks about, talks, talks about that, you know, imaginary revenge. Yeah. And I think part of what you're talking about with people who they don't attack their actual enemies, that to me is part of imaginary revenge. But I think in that is also the idea of not being able to attack something that actually is wrong with the system. It's the helplessness. It's the, it it is slave morality. Yeah. So I feel that we've discussed Uspensky and his understanding of the Superman a lot. And I want to focus a little bit more on Nietzsche and look at Nietzsche from different perspectives. Okay. Okay, so there's a passage called Of the Flies of the Marketplace, which in some respects I think can be related to Buddhism as uh, in, in a manner similar to what we discussed before and in other respects is different. So I think that I want to look at the similarities and the differences. Uh-huh. This is in uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra? This is in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Sazo is saying one of the ways that we can understand the seemingly stunted level of the world is it can be related to the mirror stage. Mm. As we've discussed with Lacan, when a a child sees himself in the mirror, that that gives a kind of unity to his, his internal reality, his sense of identity. But there's also the fact that this 
image has been moving about in the world prior to the awareness of the child and in the sense the child is the the me aspect of the child me as object or even as um as subject perceived by another um and then kind of like put in the objective case that is older than the awareness of the identity and in that sense the identity is the possession of other people yeah definitely you know and in another sense like i think it was proust who said like our personality is what other people think of us i don't see the connection well in the same sense when it talks about uh, love of one's neighbor uh-huh. it says you flee to your neighbor away from yourselves and would like to make a virtue of it but i see through your selfishness the you is older than the i the you has been consecrated but not yet the i so man crowds towards his neighbor i see do you see how i i'm connecting that to the mirror stage yeah it makes sense so that kind of goes back to that image of getting away from the crowd mm. because it's part of it's part of growing beyond the mirror stage so another point that i wanted to make is that when it talks about the friend and in the passage on love of one's neighbor or actually it's it's with the friend he talks about a conflict actually between i and me and that basically the friend act, acts in some sense as a mitigating force between these two forces within us. And what I found so interesting about that is it maps nicely to the idea of the three forces. There's an interesting paradox in the idea of self-deception in that who is the one that is deceiving and who is the one that is being deceived and how can they both be the same? That's interesting. Uh, it's exactly what uh, Nietzsche talks about in multiple places in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that we're actually using other people to deceive ourselves. So that image that we're associating with in the mirror, which we're experiencing when we're interacting with other people, he's saying part of us getting away from ourselves is convincing other people that that image that we're able to see reflected in them that image of ourselves um, is what it, it, it is that image that we've created. And then we, through them, can deceive ourselves and, in a sense, be free of this constant conflict. So I think, I think that it's it actually what you're talking about has to do with the den- that dynamic between the kind of uh, spontaneous subjectivity and the image identity that we're associating with and in a sense almost uh anesthetizing ourselves because the person who's being deceived if you put it in kind of like an uspensky framework is actually a fragmented multitude with a and the seal over it is the false personality and the false personality comes from the mirror stage the false personality comes from the society so in the same sense, like we talked about the final man, the idea that we are the final men and then people blank, part of that blanking is the not seeing, is the instability of that reality that they're trying to maintain. 
the end of growth towards the true potential of human beings. It's quite interesting how much Gurdjieff seems to get linked with Nietzsche. Uspensky being really into Nietzsche makes me sort of worry that, you know, he was interpreting Gurdjieff's teachings through a Nietzschean light. But I'm not sure if that's, you know, the extent to which it happens. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I know Uspensky better than I know uh, Gurdjieff. So that's that's where I'm coming from. So maybe some of these connections that I'm seeing. But then even really what here, what I'm doing is relating it to Lacan. Yeah. But also, but also to Uspensky in terms of the third force. Right. I mean, it's not, you know, like one of the things when they talk about the law of seven and basically that all things being equal, essentially projects don't get completed. Mm -hmm. Or when you're trying to do something, it's actually very natural for something to end up becoming its exact opposite. Right. You know, that's, I mean, how many revolutions are like that? Right. You know, one thing I was thinking about this idea of the friend in Zarathustra and thinking about just the, what you talked about previously and um, thinking about our friendship. It's kind of interesting that, I mean, I think that there have been numerous times on both of our parts where if, if I'm thinking about or um, experiencing some kind of problem or something, I somehow can't get to the solution. But then by talking with a friend like you, you can kind of see the image of me and perhaps find a solution that I was blind to. And that seems sort of really paradoxical, but there's there's this kind of idea that there's a, a truth in an identity, which is just an image to someone else. Well, the intersubjective is not strictly a world of illusion, right? <laughs> right. And human beings have uh, human beings have mirror neurons that appear to be very important in learning. Right. You know, the person figured out how to make actually make fire, not just you know capture fire and transport fire. Right. And other other beings imitated the method used by the person who was making fire, and in that imitation they were able to learn what that human being was doing. And that seems to really be a fundamental part of a human. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because we we say things like monkey see, monkey do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to really be the case that it's monkey see, monkey do. It's actually people see, people do. Because I've seen experiments where they had, they were teaching a child and they were teaching a chimpanzee to... I forget what it was, but it was like it was it had to do with solving some kind of three dimensional puzzle. Mm -hmm. And the the method shown to both of them entailed steps that were not actually necessary. Mm -hmm. And when they showed the chimpanzee, then when the chimpanzee went and went and actually performed it, the chimpanzee took out the unnecessary steps because it was intelligent. It could see, oh, I get it. And I don't need to do that. So I'm just going to ignore that part. Um, human beings did not. Human child will actually repeat that. And this kind of mimicking aspect seems to be very important uh, because sometimes if you don't actually understand something, by mimicking going through all the motions, that can help you 
learn the pattern. And then after you've been in action with the pattern, you can become conscious and then actually understand the pattern. And I think that this aspect of a a human being, the ability to kind of mirror another human being. So whereas the chimpanzee removed the unnecessary steps, the human child did not. And this kind of act of mimicking allows, this is it's probably historically very important for learning because it allowed human beings to learn from other human beings when they didn't really understand what they were doing. Right. That's something that, that's something I see basically daily, you know, with my with my children. For example, both of them see me and my wife on the telephone and then they both pick up telephone like objects and hold them to their ear and uh, babble. One interesting connection to me, I think, is with the cargo cult. Do you know this the story about a sort of tribal culture? I think it was a, a Pacific Island culture where all kinds of like items and food and su- and such were were airdropped to the to the Westerners and to the Japanese, and the cult thought that they were blessed by gods, and so they they fashioned copies of airplanes out of leaves and branches and such, and tried to get God to you know show favor to them that way. It's the same sort of idea of copying, but not knowing why. And then I guess you could say that that maybe says something interesting about the stage that. The those islanders were at right that's that sounds like the principle of magic that you find in like similarity and contagion <laughs> right which right. is essential part of magic right so that they would probably be at the magical stage right i definitely find that but i do think that that's actually that concept that way of thinking i'm sh- i'm sure it is connected with mirror neurons i'm sure it is connected with how human beings learn. And I think it's part of how we're able to make connections with other people. Right. So even though our personalities to a large degree are these kind of products of the social matrix that we live in, I I don't subscribe to a kind of extreme postmodern reading of, you know, no real communication. And in that sense that like a person can be that third force, you know, like when he says, For example, are you pure air and solitude and bread and medicine to your friend? Many a one cannot deliver himself from his own chains, and yet he is his friend's deliverer. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes uh, that that makes sense to me in terms of the third force. You know, like if you look at you look at the fourth way system without the third the, the third force, you just are going round in circles. Right. It also makes sense in the context where the fourth way talks about having a school as being necessary for development, because when the school is present, there are other subjects there, and they can act as a counterbalancing force. Right. I was just going to say that another connection to be made between Gurdjieff or maybe Uspensky and Nietzsche is with the idea of the friend and with the idea that you can't get out of prison yourself, by yourself, rather. Right. Yeah, there's two levels to that, right? There's the um, famous line, were you to escape from prison, you would have to first realize that you're in prison. 
if you think you're free, no escape is possible. And then the other point, as a uh, poet I once knew said, riffing on uh, the Jim Morrison line, no one here gets out alive, he said, no one here gets out alone. Cool. And yet going back, it was precisely solitude that was being sought to get some sense of how to escape from the prison. So I think it's really kind of a matter of counterbalancing those principles. Okay, well, just to wrap up for next time, Uspensky in his A New Model of the Universe posits that Buddhism replaces God with a Superman. And that's, of course, because the Buddha is not a god, but just a regular person. And that is during a discussion of the old idea of, well, he states that there are old and new ideas of the Superman. And the old idea was connected with a prophet or messiah figure, or even just a titan, a Hercules, or a Conan the Barbarian type. And with the old and new, I guess you could say that there are the mistaken and the correct ideas of the Superman. And looking at the idea of Conan the Barbarian, for example, a character was created and originally written by Robert E. Howard, who I want to say he lived with his mother into old age, basically typing away or drawing away in his basement. And he basically hinged his life on her so that when her health started to deteriorate, he ended up killing himself. And so I think that in that type of figure, you can see the mistaken idea of what the Superman might be. You know, someone that perhaps couldn't even remove himself, extract himself from you know, childhood with a parent taking care of him. And that that type, I would like to talk about a lot more. It can get a lot deeper, but that's for another podcast. But anyway, Uspensky talks about evolving towards the Superman. And he has this interesting idea that is not a kind of natural evolution, but something that must be shaped by ourselves. He stated, evolution, however it be understood, is not assured for anyone or for anything. The theory of evolution means only that nothing stands still. Nothing remains as it was. Everything inevitably goes either up or down, but not at all necessarily up. To think that everything necessarily goes up, this is the most fantastic conception of the possibilities of evolution. All the forms of life we know are either the result of evolution or the result of degeneration. But we cannot discriminate between these two processes, and we often mistake the results of degeneration for the results of evolution. Evolution towards Superman is the creation of new forms of thinking and feeling, and the abandonment of old forms. Moreover, we must remember that the development of a new type is accomplished at the expense of the old type, which is made to disappear by the same process. The new type being created out of an old one overcomes it, so to speak, conquers it, occupies its place. Superman is the result of a definite movement, of a definite evolution. And there, of course, we see the influence of Nietzsche, but it is almost like he's also channeling Ken Wilber. We have this idea of a sort of 
progression that integrates older stages. And we have the idea of evolution and degeneration, where you get the pre-trans fallacy from Wilbur, where you start to mistake up for down. Anyway, Uspensky is very critical of the idea that man as he is, is fully formed. And I think with good reason. And what that does is to serve as the room for improvement we have, aiming, well, however poorly we aim at the Superman. I've noticed that the idea that we are not fully formed typically meets with great resistance, which I find really strange. But Uspensky talks about this definite evolution we must create within us in order to transform. So I think most of this is framed in terms of growth or development towards the Superman, and that it has to be a conscious development along several lines simultaneously towards an inner unification of what could be called the cosmos within us. And all of that is kind of the way in which Gurdjieff has described the process of man's true development. Uspensky stated that Superman is possible and admissible only as higher consciousness. I think for part two, we should look more into Nietzsche's idea of the Superman or Overman and its connections that we have touched on here with Uspensky's conception. But I guess before that, we could look at a quote from Uspensky on the Superman to finish out the episode. He wrote, an inward understanding of the idea of infinity is much truer and deeper than the outward understanding of it, and it gives a more correct approach to the idea of Superman, a clearer understanding of it. If infinity lies in the soul of man, and if he is able to come into contact with it by penetrating within himself, this means that the future and Superman are in his soul and that he can find them within himself if he seeks them in the right way. Superman is one of the possibilities which lie within the depths of the soul of man. It rests with man himself to bring this idea nearer or to turn it aside. The nearness or remoteness of Superman from man lies not in time, but in man's attitude towards the idea, and not only in a mental attitude, but in an active and practical relation to it. Man is separated from Superman not by time, but by the fact that he is not prepared to receive Superman. The building of the future, the serving of the future, are but symbols, symbols of man's attitude towards himself, towards his own present. It is clear that if this view is accepted, and if it is recognized that all the future is contained within man himself, it will be naive to ask, what have I to do with Superman? It is evident that man has to do with Superman, for Superman is man himself. So do you want to just try to wing the outro and see what happens? Yeah, I think winging the outro is a good idea. We could say, if we were going to record an outro, then maybe we should say this and that. Yeah, like, you've been listening to Phenomenumina with co-hosts Ray, I am he. And Gino. Yeah, well, we could do it like that. Yeah, and then we could direct them to all the places where the podcast would be found. 
Spotify, iTunes, wherever they are. And, you know, check out our webpage, phenomenumina.com. What about using this? Can we use this? Yeah, I think maybe we should use this.